And you can take a seat. Thank you, team. Groundwork is starting now. Groundwork is for all those from year five up, getting ready for youth for next year, going out. So high school age, year five, year six, going out now. Who are you going out with? With Josh. Hang out to the back doors. And we are continuing with our series on the life of David. Davo, part 1022. Seriously though, this is part 10 and in two weeks we'll be part 11 and we'll be done. We're going to leave it at 11. So we're going to be finished in time for Christmas. So it's the second last one. Today um, we are going to the story of David and Bathsheba. And so I will will say it is probably PG rated. So if there's any little kids in here, parents, I have warned you, I'm not going to be too graphic or anything like that. But we are looking at a story that involves some adult issues. Anyway, last time we looked at David, we looked at how he wanted to build a temple for God. He was not happy that the temple was in a tent and he was living in a palace. And we learned that even though David didn't get to build that temple, he still had a passion for God's house. And we talked about having, living with a passion where we invest into the kingdom of God, not for us, but for the generations to come. And today we're looking, like I said, David and Bathsheba, and it's not David's finest hour. In fact, when you refer to the life of David, this is probably one of the moments, one of the things that people will think of straight away when it comes to the life of David. It's a story that's well known, and unfortunately, it's it's not one of his greatest moments in life. But we, we read previously with the life of David, Winston Churchill said, All men make mistakes, but only wise men learn from their mistakes. And today, there is a lot to learn from this series of mistakes There was a lot for David to learn, but there's also, I believe, a lot for us to learn, not to judge David, but to learn from it and to help us live our life. My message this morning is called Wondering Eyes, and I did have a little thing on the screen that was flicking eyes back and forth, but I couldn't quite get it to work on the PowerPoint, but anyway, that one will do. And we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, and get straight into it. All right, verse 1 says this, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And he looked out over the city. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. David, king of Israel, God's chosen king, is captivated by the beauty of Bathsheba taking a bath. So much so that he has to find out who this woman is. He's told who she is. He's told that she's married to one of the soldiers who's off fighting a battle for David. But despite of this, David sends a message to bring her to the palace where he takes her to his bed and they sleep together. David, as I said, is God's chosen king. He's known as a man after God's own heart. We've seen time and time again in this series of great things that he has done, choosing God when it's been difficult, choosing to follow God even though it's been a difficult thing. He's known as a good guy. He's known as one of God's generals, if you like, as someone as an example to live by. 
But now we see him do this. It tells us that nobody is perfect. You want to worship someone, worship God. Too many people make the mistake of worshipping people. They see preachers or they see missionaries or they see famous people and they worship them and they think that they're God, but they're not. They are human and they make mistakes. And David is no different. We don't know why David does this. We don't know why he goes on this path. Only God truly knows what was going on in David's heart this day for him to do these things. But I do want to make this morning two observations. Again, not judging David, but what we can learn from it for our lives. Two things that I observe David do that I think if he hadn't have done them, this story could have been very different. The first one is in verse 1, we read that it was springtime. Kings normally go to war in the spring. But this time, David stayed in Jerusalem. Instead of going to war, he sent his army to war. David was a warrior. We started off this series. We're seeing David chosen by God. We, we learned about David and Goliath. We learn about the songs that were sung about him, how he was a great general, a great leader in the army. He was a warrior king. He was not afraid of battle from his teenage years defeating Goliath right throughout his life. In fact, his, his kingship was built on his ability to lead his men in battle. He wasn't someone that delegated that task out to others and said, no, you go off to war, I'm going to stay at home and be, play king. He was a king that led from the front. He led by example. He was prepared to be on the front line of the battle. He was prepared to take that risk in battle. But this time, for whatever reason, he didn't go to war. When kings went to war, he stayed at home and he sent his men to fight instead. And it's during this time, it's during this time at home in Jerusalem when he notices the beauty of Bathsheba. If he had been at war like he normally would have been and where other kings would, this never would have happened. It never would have happened. He never would have seen her in the first place. He would have been off sleeping in a tent somewhere, worrying about an enemy. Instead of being active, he was being idle. His men are fighting a war and he is taking midday naps. Just pause for a minute and just think, how good are midday naps? Just quietly. Does anyone still get to have them? I've got kids that don't believe in the idea of quiet. Nothing wrong with having a rest. I'm not talking about not resting. What I am saying, though, is David is a warrior king. And instead of being at war, he's at home and he's idle. What's the lesson for us? Maybe it's this. Maybe it's we're vulnerable when we're idle. Maybe it's when we're not doing what God's called us to do, we're in a vulnerable position. Maybe when we're idle, we see other things that distract us and lead us down a path that we don't want to take. It's certainly the case for David. In his idle state... He notices Bathsheba. If he had been at war doing the thing that God had called him to do, he was a warrior king. None of this would have happened. My second observation about David is what he does after he notices Bathsheba. In other words, the second, third, fourth, fifth and sixth look across the city that day. After he noticed her beauty, he inquired and then he acted. I don't think there's much you can do about noticing. If I'm King David and I'm standing looking across the city of Jerusalem and I see a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath, I'm going to notice. Aren't I, lots? <laughs> Nothing you can do sometimes about the noticing. We live in a world 
full of images and visual stimulation. It is nearly impossible to live your life without noticing something that is tempting. Whether it be, in this case, a woman, whether it be a house, whether it be a car, whether it be something, whatever it is that you lust after or are stimulated by that's attractive to you. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. I don't think there's much we can do and I don't think there's much David could have done. He is a man without noticing Bathsheba taking a bath. I remember when I was a young guy, we used to go on these Christian surfers trips and I look back now and go, why did they take us there? They used to take us to this really good spot where there were great waves, but to get to it, you had to drive through a hippie commune where they didn't wear clothes. And as a 16-year-old boy going to the surf, it was like eyes down because you didn't want to see things. But there was always the temptation to, when the leaders went looking, just have a little peek. Because you're a 16-year-old boy and you're like, this is interesting. When I became a youth pastor, I looked back and go, what did, we, what did they take us there for? Maybe they wanted to look, but that's another story. I don't think there's much you can do about the noticing. I think the battle is what we do after we notice. What happens in those moments after you notice something that is tempting to you? After you see something, do you have another look? Do you inquire? Do you act upon that attraction? Another example. I was watching TV one night. This is the days before Netflix. When you're watching a movie and the ads come on, what do you do? You channel surf. Lozzie's gone to bed, I'm staying up at night watching TV, it's an ad, I'm flicking through the channels. I get to SBS. Everyone knows SBS stands for Sex, Boobs and Soccer. <laughs> and it wasn't soccer on TV at this time. So as a good Christian, I kept flicking the channels and thought, oh, I can't watch that. But as a human being, I found myself flicking back to that channel going, I wonder if it's still on. And after a while, I'm going, this is silly. What am I doing? Keep looking, going back to this channel. There was something in me that was inquiring about something that I had seen. And I had to make a decision in that moment. And you know what I did? I picked up my remote and I threw it to the other side of the living room. I changed it off SBS first. Because <laughs> I knew I was more lazy than I was interested. And there was no way I was getting off the lounge to flick it back. So I flicked it back to the movie and said, I'm just going to put up with the ads because I can't put myself in a position where I can inquire about something that I've been attracted to look at. And it's what you do in the moment after you notice, after the first look, that determines the course of your life, that determines the actions and where you end up in life. And I'm not just talking about sex and the attraction for a guy to look at at those things. There's a whole range of different things. This is just the example with David and Bathsheba and the only examples I could think of, really. <laughs> what you do after you notice determines the path you take in your life. For David, he chose the path of taking another man's wife to his bed and sleeping with her. In a moment, we will look at the consequences of David's actions. But before we do, I want to talk to you for a moment about what you choose to look at. I said before, it's nearly impossible to avoid noticing. There's things that attract our attention, that, that visually stimulate us, and we go, wow, I want to have a look at that. But what about the things that we choose to look at? The things that we deliberately choose to look at over and over again? 
Maybe we, we noticed it the first time, but the second and the third and the fourth time, it's us choosing to look at it. Do you know that your eyes are quite powerful? I'm not talking about whether you've got good vision or not. I was at the shops yesterday and someone waved to me and said, Hey, Lottie, and I looked up. See, I need glasses for long-distance viewing, and I couldn't tell who it was, so I'm doing that awkward old man thing, yeah. I said, sorry, I didn't realise. When I got closer, I could tell who it was. And I said, oh, how, how are you? But I couldn't see. I'm not talking about the power of your vision, whether you need glasses or not. I'm talking about your eyes being powerful entry points into your life. Matthew 6, Jesus said this, Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, well then how deep that darkness is. This tells me that our eyes can deceive us. We can think we've got light, but actually it's darkness. It tells me that our eyes have great power in determining what we allow into our lives. Our eyes, i.e. what we look at, is a doorway for many things to enter into our life. And so what you choose to look at determines what you allow into your life. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were tempted into eating the fruit from the tree that God had told them not to eat from. Look at the role that Eve's eyes played in making this decision. Genesis 3, 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. And its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. This was the one tree that they were told not to eat from. But her eyes deceived her. Her eyes told her it looked beautiful. Her eyes told her it looked good. Her eyes told her that this was something attractive that she needed in her life. And her eyes deceived her in this moment. And her eyes allowed sin to enter into her world. You know, that little passage of, of Eve is very similar to David. We could reread that scripture to say something like this. David was convinced. He saw that Bathsheba was beautiful. I'm not going to mention anything about her fruit. <laughs> he wanted the pleasure it would give him. So he took her to his bed. See, his eyes deceived him. His eyes told him it was something good for him, but his eyes opened a doorway for things that he didn't want in his world. Our eyes will convince you of many th us of many things. It's difficult enough with all the visual stimulation in our world. That's why the stuff that we can avoid, we should. Don't put yourself in unnecessary situations of temptation. Adam and Eve didn't need to be in that part of the garden. They were told the whole garden is yours. There's one tree don't eat from. My question is, what are they even doing near that tree? If there's one spot you, you know is not good for you, why be near it? Why be in a place where you can see it? It's called the power of proximity. Why, why be in the same environment as that thing that you've been told is not good for you? Location, location, location. In real estate, location matters. In the things that we get tempted to in life, location matters. David should have been at war in a totally different location. Not on the palace roof, looking out across the city at naked women. When he did notice her, he had a decision to make, and we're going to look at the, the consequences of that decision. But can I encourage all of us, and I know this is a bit of a heavy topic, but can I encourage all of us to make wise decisions? 
to make decisions that say, is this environment good for me? Is this person's house a good place for me to be hanging out? Is this a good place for me to be? Is this a good show for me to be watching? Is this a good book for me to be reading? Is this a good friend for me to have? And I'm not saying you can't have friends and you can't go places. The Bible says to be in the world but not of the world. Just but make decisions. Are you going to be the, the influencer or are you going to be influenced? And if you're influenced by that environment, then maybe you're not ready for that environment. Maybe you need to make some decisions that say, no, I'm going to put myself in a place where it's not even tempting, where I'm not going to be tempted in that way because I, I don't trust myself. It's okay not to trust yourself. It's okay to say, you know what, I, I need to remove myself from that situation. David noticed, then he inquired, and then he acted. And there were consequences. Free will means we always have a choice. We always, always have a choice. But free will does not mean we get to choose the consequences of that choice. The consequences of that choice are beyond our control. Let's see the consequences. 2 Samuel 11 verse 5. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Straight to the point. Bathsheba is pregnant, but her husband Uriah is away with the army at war. David fears being found out for what he did. So he sends for Uriah to come home from the war. He tells Uriah, go home to be with your wife, hoping that Uriah and Bathsheba will do what a husband and wife do when they haven't seen each other for a while. They'll have a cup of tea and talk. <laughs> He's hoping for a happy reunion and then a pregnancy to come that will appear normal, that will appear like Uriah's the, the, the father. But Uriah refuses to go home. When David asks him why, this is what Uriah says, why he won't go home. Verse 11. The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I will never do such a thing. Uriah's honour and integrity won't allow him to return home. He's like, while ever my men and the people that I'm out meant to be fighting with are sleeping in the field, I will not return home. David, in his attempt to continue the cover-up, makes another terrible decision. We've seen before with David that one bad decision often leads to another. And with David, it's this. He sends Uriah back to the battle. He sends him with a letter for his commander, Joab. And the letter tells Joab to send Uriah to the fiercest part of the battle and then to retreat so that Uriah is killed in the battle. Joab did as he was instructed, and sure enough, Uriah is killed in the fighting. The news is reported back to David in Jerusalem, and Bathsheba hears about it as well. So he tries to cover up the, the thing that he's done wrong by getting Uriah to come home. Uriah refuses, so out of the fear of being exposed, he then sends Uriah to his death. So he's gone from one bad decision, one wrong thing, to another. And the news comes back. In 2 Samuel eleven twenty six. we read this. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. But when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. And she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. It appears that David has gotten away with what he did. It appears that now it looks like he's brought Bathsheba to be one of his wives. She's pregnant. She's had a baby. Everything is under control. It appears that he's gotten away with having Uriah killed 
taking for a wife. But the thing is, if he'd gotten away with it, it wouldn't be in the Bible, would it? Proverbs 12, 19 says this, Truthful words stand the test of time, but lies are soon exposed. And David's lies are soon exposed when Nathan the prophet is sent by God to intervene. Let's read this, chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity on him. Then Nathan says to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. David is confronted by Nathan the prophet. Before we look at how David responds to being caught out in this, I want to ask you this really important question. Who is your Nathan? Who is the person in your world that could have that conversation with you? Who is the person in your world that would be honest enough with you to tell you the truth? Nathan was the man that David had gone to. When he wanted to build the temple, he went to Nathan and he said, Nathan, I want to build this temple for God. And Nathan was the one that said, no, it's not for you, but it's for your son to do. There's a relationship there. There's a trust there. There's an there's a ongoing relationship there. It's not just some stranger rocking up and criticizing David. It's not someone who doesn't know him all of his life, but it's someone who he's got a friendship with, a trust with, but it's someone that will tell him the truth. Nathan is not a yes person, is he? He will tell him the hard truth sometimes. And I think all of us need a Nathan in our world. Someone that we have a relationship with. Yeah, you've got a Nathan, Mel, we know that. It's very good. But what about everyone else other than Mel? We need that friend. That person, whoever it is, your, your husband, your wife, maybe it's a mate, maybe it's someone at church, just someone that will be honest with you. When they see you doing, going down a wrong path, will correct you on it. Not to judge you, not because they're better than you, but because they care for you. We all need a Nathan in our world. God used Nathan in, his, in this. Yeah, you can quote that when you go home and tell Nathan too. We all need a Nathan in our world. God uses Nathan in this instance to confront David about what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. Let's read David's response. Verse 13. David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses, no justification, no blaming anyone else, no blaming the circumstances. 
he admits his wrongs. He says, I've done the wrong thing. I've sinned against the Lord. It's in this time that David writes Psalm 51. And I want to read it to you because it shows you the sincerity and the brokenness of a man who's been confronted with doing the wrong thing. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. See, even in the middle of being confronted with doing something, he hasn't lost sight of the fact that God loves him. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. I don't know if David would have had peace doing what he had done. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the heart, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me, but now let me, let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the, remove, remove, sound like a cow. Remove the stain of my guilt. Verse 10, you'll know this verse. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit or right spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. Saying you don't want religion here. You don't want a religious practice or a ceremonial rite or anything like that. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. You can see that David's a broken man. You can see that David is not just going, oh yeah, I did the wrong thing. It's broken him. It's caused him to rethink his life. It's caused him to go, you know what, I really am. I've done, really done the wrong thing. But David also knows that God will not reject a person in that state. God's not put off by our honesty. God's not put off by us coming to that conclusion that David come to. When David admits that he's wrong, he admits that, that's, that he's been caught out. This is what Nathan says to him. Verse 12, I mean verse 13. So I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you straight away. And you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. David is forgiven. No arguing about that. Nevertheless, there are consequences. This is a difficult verse to read. And if I'm honest, I wish it wasn't in there. I wish we could just get rid of verse 14. But like I said before, we don't get to choose the consequences of our actions. 
Why did it have to be that way? I don't know. The child that David and Bathsheba had together soon got a, a deadly disease and within a week was dead. And David begged God to rescue the child and not take the child's life. He even said, take my place instead. As a dad, that's what you would do. He'd rather you take the punishment than your son take it or your daughter. doesn't say if it was a boy or a girl. Especially when you know that it was your actions that led to these consequences. Can you imagine David's state at this time? Can you imagine how broken he is? Can you imagine how bad he's feeling? I, I can only imagine. It's really difficult to be able to put yourself in his situation. What we do know is he's very repentant. He's very broken. He does say this, which tells me he has a truth that he's holding on to in this difficult time. Verse 23, he says, I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. So he has a hope that one day he will see his child again. But right now, in this moment, David and Bathsheba have to learn to live their life without their child. I imagine that this was the hardest time in David's life. I can't, I, there's some other stuff that he went through that was difficult, but I reckon this would have to be the most difficult. The hurt and the pain caused by his actions probably affected him for the rest of his life. If we're, if we're real about that. And like I said, I don't fully understand why it had to happen that way. I do know that there are consequences for action. But despite of the hurt, despite of the pain, God still has a plan for David's life. David's sin did not disqualify him from what God had promised to him. David's actions on this series of events, although they were bad and although they were consequences, it did not wipe him out. It did not take him out. And I think too often we write people off. Too often we, things happen and they're bad and I'm not dismissing them. But we can't let that, that action define a person and we can't let our actions define us. See, David made a big mistake. Yes, massive mistake. Huge consequences. Things that we don't understand. But the thing is, God still had a plan for his life. God had promised him things and he was still determined to see those things come to pass. God had previously said to David, David, I will always be with you. I always have and I always will be. God had said to David, I will make your name famous. God had said to David, I will provide a home for the nation of Israel. From you, David, a dynasty of kings will come. Your son will be the son who builds me the temple that you wanted to build. God had said all those things to David. And as big as this, this sin is and as big as the situation it is, None of that was changed. God didn't say, okay, change your plans now. You're not worthy to, to be used by me anymore. No, despite of David's failings, despite of the mistakes, God still used him. We read in the next verse, verse 24, David then com comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child. Solomon is born. Solomon is the son who builds the temple in Jerusalem, the temple that David wanted to build. Solomon is the son who becomes king after David and continues the dynasty of kings to come out of David. Solomon is the promise that God has been speaking to all along. This passage in David's life, it's difficult. 
It's obvious he's done the wrong thing. But it hasn't taken him out. There is still a plan and a purpose for his life. And there's a whole lot we can learn from this passage in David's life. First thing that I take out, all of us sin. All of us make mistakes. Whether we're David or whether we're we're not in the Bible. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The second thing I take out of this is forgiveness is available for all of us. Even when we do something big like this. You know, when you read a story like this, this is the temptation. The temptation is to compare our life and go, I haven't done anything that bad. Or, that's nothing compared to what I've done. But you're comparing. The only thing you need to compare yourself to is God. Compare that we are all sinners, whether it's a big sin or a little sin. There's no scores in sin. It's not like you do something and God goes, okay, that's a 10, and that's a 7, oh, that's a big one, that's a 20. No, it's, we make mistakes, all of us. We're all on the level playing field when it comes to that with God. But because of what God has done in sending his son, we are all able to receive forgiveness. God, it says this, God will not reject a broken and repentant heart. There will be consequences to our actions, but God's promises are true and he is faithful. He will complete the work he has started within us, even when we make monumental stuff-ups like this one. Can the creative team come? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, it's not on the screen. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. All of us in life will be tempted. Whether we give in to that temptation or not, you know, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. God is faithful through it all. He'll continue to use and do what he wants to do in our lives. This morning I want to do just two, two prayers to finish. I want us to close our eyes in this room. And the first is, is not something for much of a response, but more just for me to say. Let's not allow our sin to stop us from being in relationship with God. Let's not allow us when we do the wrong thing to think, oh no, we can't have a relationship with God. Let's be quick to go to Him. But I want to pray for those this morning that are battling with temptation. Those wandering eyes. And I'm not going to get you to put your hand up because you're not telling me. It's just in your heart right now. I just want you to close your eyes. If there's any area in your life where you're battling with that temptation. Tempted to make decisions, tempted to go down a path that you don't want to go, but it looks good. It looks attractive. It looks beneficial. God, I pray for every person. God, I thank you that you love it when we're honest with you. And right now, we just choose to be honest with you. Admit areas that we're struggling in. Admit areas that we might be tempted in. 
God, if there's anything in us that's leading us down a path we don't want to take, right now we just choose to turn from it. We, we pray the prayer of David this morning that you would create in us a clean heart, O oh God, that you would renew a right spirit within us. We know, Lord God, that you won't banish us from your presence. And we know that the Holy Spirit can never be taken from us. So we choose, Lord God, to be in relationship with you. God, help us to make wise decisions, wise choices, choices that lead to life and goodness and not death and despair. And God, I thank you above all that no matter what we choose, for the times when we do muck it up and make the wrong decisions, you are faithful. Your love for us is unconditional. And God, you have got open arms for each of us to be in your presence. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know what it is to be in relationship with God, to know the love of Jesus, to know a forgiving, loving Saviour, then don't leave today without coming and having a chat. I'd love to meet you. Our team in the Connect Lounge would love to meet you. We'd love to just pray with you and talk to you about how you can invite Jesus into your life and know the forgiveness and the love that he has got for all of us. Two weeks' time, we're going to finish this series on the life of David. And my prayer with this whole series is that we would learn from a man in the Bible that there's a lot written about and that would help us live our life in a practical way. This week, guaranteed, all of us at some stage are going to be tempted with something. Tempted with anger, tempted with lust, tempted with unforgiveness, tempted with whatever. We can't avoid that. But my prayer for us is that we would be a church and we would be a people that makes wise decisions. And when we don't make those wise decisions, we'd make an even better decision to be close to God in relationship with Him. And I pray that we would have people in our world that would encourage us and walk this journey together so that we don't walk it alone. Amen? I'm done. <laughs>